to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. And today on Sense and Sensibility, we are going to talk about Harry Seldon, psychohistory and the failings of modern macroeconomics. But before I get to that, I, I, I have to clean up something that uh, from last week. Uh, a reader wrote in uh, about my my podcast rents and sensibility and and made a very good point about the way that I described uh, the interaction of mobility with rent increases. And I want to clarify what I'd said and, and, and what I what I meant to say, uh, just so nobody is confused. The way I said it, it made it sound as if if you didn't change an apartment, if you didn't move, that your the the your rent stayed the same. And and so that when nobody moved during COVID, it meant that that rents basically didn't go up for anybody who wasn't moving. And that's clearly not true. Obviously if you've ever had, if you've ever rented an apartment, you know that your rent goes up, you know, every year. The landlord comes to you and and raises your rent. And you have the option to go and move at that point or or take the rental increase. And and that's and and so the way I said it made it sound like there's no rental increase, but the rent increase on an existing tenant who's renewing is almost always less, and it's never more than what a landlord believes the asking rent on that unit would be, because keeping the same tenant means you don't have any search fees, there's no vacancy, there's no restoring the unit to rentable condition. And so on. So there's lots of things you save by keeping the same tenant. So a landlord would almost always, unless the tenant is a jerk, would almost always prefer to keep the same tenant. So the way that a lack of mobility depresses rents is not by by making rents rent change go to zero on the people who aren't moving. It just means that the the rental increases, the opportunity to get a full increase in rent is less. And that's especially true, of course, probably during COVID, where if somebody moved out, the, the opportunity to get somebody moving in was was probably harder because there weren't many people moving around. And so the lack of mobility also meant that there was an incentive for landlords to try to keep those rental increases lower um, so that they wouldn't have vacancies. Well, we're going to talk more about about incentives on today's uh, podcast, but I wanted to to first clear that up. I want to let you know that I do listen to your comments and I and anything that comes in, and and if there is a confusion, of course, I'll write back and try to clarify with the individual person writing in. But I also want to let everybody else know um, that if I've said something that uh, is unclear, I want to make sure that I clear it up. So now I want to turn to Isaac Asimov. Now, I've always loved Isaac Asimov. Uh, I've always loved his more than a trilogy, foundation trilogy. Uh, it, it has recently come to Apple TV. And so it's, I've sort of gotten to rekindle my affection for this, this uh, uh, landmark science fiction work or series of works in science fiction. And so far, the episodes on on Apple TV uh, of the Foundation um, have been really good. 
I don't think they're really a substitute for the books. They're a must-read if you like science fiction. If you haven't ever read the Foundation series, you really should read the Foundation series. But I'll sum it up for you if you have not read the, uh, the, the Foundation series. The books concern Harry Seldon. They kind of start with, with Harry Seldon, who is a psychohistorian. Uh, and the and about the the fall and rise of the Galactic Empire. Harry Seldon is sort of the first psychohistorian, and I'll tell you what that is in a second. He uses psychohistory to predict the entire course of history for like a thousand years and all these alternative paths that history can take and is instrumental in causing the foundation, uh, which is a group of scientists, of psychohistorians, to come into existence. Uh, the psychohistorians are supposed to basically guide history through the, the difficult time when the empire falls and is replaced by a period of barbarism and eventually a new empire. Now, how does he do this? How, how does he, you know, forecast history? Is he some kind of medium and he can see the future? No, what's interesting about this is that the idea here is that while you cannot predict the behavior of a single person very well at all, the more people you put together, the better your forecast is. Uh, and so the, on the scale of a galactic civilization with quadrillions of people, you can make very, very accurate uh, forecasts of, of the behavior of the entire population. It's, it's like the law of large numbers, but it's applied to people. So the law of large numbers. So if you have a coin and you flip a coin, it might come up heads, it might come up tails. You have roughly a 50-50 chance, or you have exactly a 50-50 chance of forecasting correctly whether or not you're going to flip a coin heads or tails. But if you flip a coin a million times, then you can forecast, you, you have a very good sense that the approximate number of, of heads is going to be is, is going to be equal to the approximate number of tails. In other words, it's going to be roughly a 50-50 shot over a long period of time that you'll get a head or a tails. But on any, on, any, on any one flip, on any two or three flips, you really don't have, there's a much wider range of outcomes. And so the bigger you get that sample, the more you get, you actually get uh, the realized mean of the, the experimental mean uh, converges on the population mean. So, so what 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 psychohistory says is that you know it's not that there are no extraordinary popular delusions, that there are no madness of crowds, but that but that you can predict when masses of people will collectively lose their minds and roughly what the what the arc of that uh, will be. Again, you can't do this with 10 or 20 people, but you can predict large groups. Basically, he's sort of a macro behavioral economist uh, before we had that before that term meant anything. Now this makes sense to me. I've always loved the concept. It seems intuitive to me that while, when something good happens in a football game, you can't forecast whether any particular person is going to cheer. 
you can forecast with a very high confidence that there will be a large rise in the, uh, the, the noise in the stadium. Uh, you don't know who's going to cheer, but you know overall, you know that there's going to be lots and lots of cheering. So this makes sense to me. So why the hell don't it work? I mean, econ- economists make colossally bad forecasts of large numbers of people. Now, we're ta- not talking quadrillions, but surely if you're making a forecast about 300 million people or you're making a forecast about 7 billion people, surely that's enough people that you can make some decent forecasts in there. Uh, so, so that is the conundrum. I mean, why is it that we're so bad at this if, in fact, the concept has value? Or maybe the concept has no value and and all of life is just totally random and there's just no point trying to forecast anything that relies on behavior. So I, I think the, the concept makes sense. Um, so I have to sort of reconcile the idea that the concept makes sense with the fact that in practice it doesn't seem to work. Well, let me introduce you to the work of Dr. Bruce Buena de Mesquita. Uh, Dr. Buena de Mesquita, I've known him for a long time. Um, He wrote a book. He's written all kinds of things. You can just go and Google Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, M-E-S-Q-U-I-T-A, and you'll find his work all over the place. And, and if you just look at it a little bit, you'll or the, you'll look at the Wikipedia page on him, you'll see that it's not ridiculously far off the concept of, of being a psychohistorian. He's a professor at NYU. Um, the, the first book I read of his was uh, Predicting Politics, which is from 2002, but he's written lots more things. And I guess he has a book coming out early next year. Um, I haven't spoken to Bruce in a long time, so I'm not... I'm not uh, uh, propping his book just for funsies, but he's he's a very very smart man, and and I think he's d- demonstrated convincingly that you can make good predictions about really complex group decisions by knowing just a few things about the actors involved. And in fact, he has a long history through you know a lot of it for the CIA about that that involves making predictions about complex interactions. And he says that, effectively, you need to know this about the main actors. You need to know their positions. You need to know their power. You need to know their influence. You need to know the salience of the issue and the outcomes to them. Uh, And you need to know how flexible they are with respect to accepting different outcomes. What you do not need to know is what they think is going to happen. what you just need to you need to know for each of the actors all of these things and you put them into these complex models and you get the expected outcome and you get some hints about what you might need to do if you wanted to change that outcome you know which which person do you need to influence and Spoiler alert, it isn't necessarily the person you think has the most power. A lot of times the person who has the most power in a situation doesn't care that much about the situation and can be persuaded by another player who has, for whom the issue has great salience and has influence over the right people and can affect the right outcome. So 
again, Bruce Buena de Mesquita has made some very accurate predictions over a long period of time. He's a remarkable forecasting record. He's not Harry Seldon, but he proves, I think, that it can be done. So why the hell don't it work? <laughs> I think it does. But modern macroeconomics does a very, very poor job of modeling these things and frequently ignores incentives. And that's kind of inexcusable because economics is all about incentives. And not all economists, of course, make this mistake, but many of them do. And at the end of the day, there's, there's just barely any agreement about how you model the power of incentives and how powerful incentives are and how they how incentives work differently on different people and how they work in the aggregate. If there was such agreement, then nobody would have been surprised when an increase in the in unemployment insurance payments caused lots of people to effectively drop out of the workforce in order to take more leisure plus more money. I mean, lots of people did say that you would have that kind of impact, but I don't know that anybody that made a very good forecast of how large that impact would be, what some of the knock-on effects would be. And I know there were a lot of people who forecast it would have no measurable impact whatsoever after a brief period of time because people like to work. And that's true. Some people like to work. But, but knowing in aggregate how incentives work, you might have predicted something differently. But certainly the range of forecasts is, I think, evidence that we don't really have a good sense, we don't have a good model for how incentives really do work on large populations. So psychohistory isn't real, but behavioral economics is. There is no Harry Seldon, but there is a Bruce Brandon de Mesquita. So maybe we're headed in the right direction. But I think that it's important to remember that effectively what the real lesson of psychohistory is, is that, you know, the individual behavioral quirks of a small group of people affect outcomes, but that when you aggregate over a whole bunch of people, all of those kind of quirks effectively end up canceling out and you should be able to make predictions based on the very very consistent effect of underlying incentives. So, for example, you might assume, if you were a Federal Reserve economist, that manufacturers won't raise prices because they feel um, there's, you know, they're just out of habit, you know, they feel their, their customers will push back. And, uh, and, and that's probably true. I mean, certainly some of the manufacturers I talk to have a knee-jerk reaction that they don't like to raise prices because they think they'll get a lot of pushback. But there's also a great incentive when all of your customers are flush that you should be raising prices. And over a, a large number of manufacturers, it's those incentives that end up winning out, not the sense that that uh, of some weird stickiness that they just don't feel like they should raise prices. So anyway, this is super important in inflation and everything else and shows up in far too many places for us to really discuss here today. But these topics will keep coming up in future podcasts. Maybe we'll see if we can get Harry Seldon to come on a future show. That would be kind of interesting, except that he's fictional and that, that causes some problems uh, with scheduling. 
But anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe, recommend, get the Inflation Guy app. You, uh, if you have any questions or you have a suggestion for a future topic, then you can message me from within the Inflation Guy app, or you can go to EnduringInvestments.com and fill out the contact form there, and I'll get back to you. If you have any any interest in inflation investing or any questions about what it is that we do, you can find some of those answers on uh, on the Enduring Investments website. Uh, I spoke to one listener this week about the uh, there's a an area of the Enduring Investments website that's uh, under, I believe, Tools Library, and it has all kinds of different articles on inflation, uh, all kinds of different research from all kinds of different people, all kinds of different topics. And so if you're kind of vaguely interested in the, in the subject, you can go poke around there. It's not the, uh, the, the galactic library or anything like that, but it's got some good stuff there, and it'll, it'll pique your interest. And so that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in to Sense and Sensibility. I am Michael Ashton. I am the inflation guy. Defend your money. If inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>